All right, everyone, let's get started. Here for round two of their similar lecture that was done in the spring of this uh, year. Uh, wanted to have all of you new folks uh, get a taste for what is involved with uh, ultrasound here in this institution led by Dr. Murthy and Dr. Hasse. Um, they both are intimately involved in the education of you all. If you haven't rotated with them yet, you will, and it's a great experience. So to start us off, Dr. Haas will be talking on um, a left ventricular ejection fraction and VTI, making sense of LV output. Um, a little bit of background, uh, Dr. Haas did his medical training um, as an MD at University of Iowa, uh, did an emergency medicine residency at Maricopa in Arizona, followed up with a couple of critical care fellowships, both at, here at Trauma as well as at University of Pittsburgh, and we're lucky to have him back here and uh, working mostly in the CCRU, but he does some ED shifts as well. Um, and so, start you off, thanks. All right, uh, so like Dr. Mercury said, I'm Hasse, I work mostly up in the CCRU, but spent a lot of my time with uh, Dr. Murthy over in ultrasound. Um, so today, we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, left ventricular output. Um, and I think this is one of the more daunting things for, for people when they're just starting to get familiar with ultrasound. I think some of our emergency physician colleagues are a little bit more comfortable with it after going through emergency medicine. Certainly the surgeons and maybe some of the medicine people, not so much, uh, and certainly how to actually do some of those things. So um, we're gonna talk about uh, just visual estimation and get you guys a little more comfortable with that and kind of my part of it. And then uh, Dr. Murphy is going to talk a little bit about how to measure VTI and why we can use VTI as a surrogate for stroke volume and ultimately cardiac output uh, and why it makes a little bit more sense for critical care using that as opposed to some of the other things that the, the cardiologists do. Um, and then she's going to talk a lot about how to, uh, how, what the interaction is or what the relationship is between cardiac output, stroke volume, uh, SVR, et cetera, okay? Um, and then we're going to talk about some cases at the end. So we're going to talk about the background of this and then apply them to cases and see how um, having just one or just the other, LVEF or VTI uh, alone, um, can often or may possibly mislead you in some cases. And that the two together uh, tells you a lot more about LV output than just, just one, than just having a cardiologist do an echo and say, oh, their LVEF is 55%. Um, it's not always quite that simple, and I think uh, that's a little bit what we're going to talk about today. Things we're not going to discuss, we're not going to talk about RD, RV dysfunction at all, and we're not going to really talk about fluid response to death. We're really only talking about LV output in terms of contractility, ejection fraction, those types of things, okay? So this is kind of the breakdown. I'm going to do about 15 minutes, and then Sarah's going to do about 15 minutes, and we're going to spend uh, hopefully a little bit more time on cases, um, and that will uh, be hopefully the most beneficial thing for you guys. If you don't have a clicker, please grab them. They're up by Dr. Tessarero in the back. Everyone needs to participate, okay? And I think the reason, so get up if you haven't eaten lunch or Mike can pass them out, but um, I think this helps you kind of like buy in and like sell, like I am committed to a certain answer. And it's okay to be wrong. We don't follow the answers or anything like that. Um, but it also helps me kind of figure out what uh, you guys are thinking about certain things and so that we can talk about uh, what those answers are. Because the first like 15 minutes is literally just going to be you guys interpreting echoes. Um, so it's actually kind of uh, kind of important to have the clickers, okay? So everybody needs a clicker. Our attendings, our med students, everybody. All right. So uh, just to get you guys, uh, and all right, so super, my first one didn't work. All right. Um, so just think about what's your current level of comfort with estimating LV systolic function. The first one is closed already, evidently. Um, but think, you know, where's, what's your baseline right now? And we're going to ask you this question again at the, uh, again at the end. Um, but what's just like, if you look at an echo, are you able to tell me what the ejection fraction is, or at least tell me if it's normal, hyperdynamic, moderately or severely depressed? All right, and then uh, just think a little bit about What's your background with VTI, stroke volume, cardiac output, and whether or not you feel comfortable with those? All right, so um, when we talk about the ways to uh, estimate LV systolic function, there's a bunch of different ways, and um, I think emergency medicine in particular uh, wants to kind of place like the, the one-stop shop for everything, right? I'm an emergency physician, I can say that, right? They wanna, they wanna say E-point septal separation can tell you everything you need to know about ejection fraction, or fractional shortening can tell you everything. And it's not quite that simple. There's a bunch of more technical things that the cardiologists do, including 3D echo to help figure out what your EF is. But today, we're really just going to talk about visual or global assessment of EF, OK? 
So these are kind of the classic American Society of Echocardiography breakdowns of what a normal, um, what the different classifications of ejection fraction are. And we need to stop thinking about numbers, right? Because numbers in critical care, and I want to make this very clear, we're talking about critical care echo today. We're not talking about outpatient echocardiography. Uh, what we do is very, very different than that. It's really about is what you're seeing on the screen and what the patient is doing right now appropriate for the, the clinical scenario that you're in, okay? It doesn't matter if it's 55 versus 60% or 30 versus 35%. That part's not important. Is the LV in the way that it's working right now appropriate for the clinical scenario? And then is there anything that we can do about it or what should we do about it, if anything, okay? So stop thinking about numbers and start thinking a little bit more about uh, classifications. And this may even be too specific. Uh, but really kind of think about in the right patient. Um, is normal really normal, or is mild dysfunction really causing a lot of problems in the septic patient who needs a cardiac output of 10 liters? So we're thinking about that in critical care a little bit more. Specifically, we talk about LV function and hypotension. So this is kind of the way that we think about when you guys order a free echo through us. Uh, we ask you to ask a clinical question. And the vast majority of the time, it's that the patient's in shock, their lactate's up, their blood pressure's down, and you want to know the LV systolic function and whether or not the patient needs fluids, an inotrope, or a vasopressor. Or if they're in respiratory failure, do they need diuresis? Um, and those are the things that we think about with critical care echo, all right? So first, kind of going down the classifications, when you look at a hyperdynamic heart, right, this is the one that squeezes completely. The walls are kissing. That's, this is a pretty easy one to figure out. A lot of the time, they're tachycardic. Uh, and that's very helpful. And this is kind of what I think about NECO is like, this is not causing the shock, right? Their LV systolic function is not causing their shock. We can be very, uh, very sure of that. And it's not contributing to the shock necessarily, right? And we're just talking about LV systolic function here. When you look at normal, it looks good. The walls contract. All of them contract symmetrically. The walls thick. And that's what we're looking at on echo. And once again, it's not causing the shock. A totally normal echo in some patients may not be perfectly normal given the clinical scenario, right? If I'm sitting with a heart rate of 60 and normal EF, but I have severe acute pancreatitis, I may actually want a little bit better LV function than that, right? You wouldn't expect that out of me, hopefully, with a normal heart at 30, I think. Um, so that's we got to think about clinical scenario. Mild dysfunction is like, it's not quite normal, um, but it doesn't look terrible. It's not the one that the... Um, that you're like, oh my god, I, I'm not even sure if this patient's alive, right? But you're, this is not helping the shock, right, in a patient who has high cardiac output demands. Moderate dysfunction is like, it's clearly not right. This is what most people can say, well, that heart is not beating quite appropriately in echo. And this may be contributing to their shock, whether it's hemorrhagic shock and the inflammatory response afterwards uh, or what have you. And last is the severe dysfunction. Like, this is the one that's like on there, like barely squeezing at all. The medical students in here, the first year medical students in here can fi figure it out, right? Like, that's completely not normal. Uh, and that's, if it's not causing our shock from cardiogenic shock, it certainly uh, is not helping us uh, meet our metabolic demand, all right? All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to do, I think, eight or nine cases today, and we're just going to look at three different views. We're going to go through peristernal long, short, and apical forward chamber uh, on a bunch of these different cases. And I just want you to think about what it looks like, okay? So I'm starting off on patient number one. That should be a clue. I don't want to mislead you guys too much on the first one, right? So our parasternal long axis, right? Um, so you can see our LV is here, right? Ooh, wow. Uh, so septum's here, free wall's here. We can see that they're contracting, they're coming together, they're thickening. All right. Next one, so this is parasternal short. We're at the what level? Papillary muscle level, right? That's what's in there. You see septum and septum here. Free wall here, they're contracting nicely. All right, apical four chamber. So, RV, LV is what we're talking about here. Septum, apex, free wall, LA is back here, mitral valve for all the guys who are a little less experienced. All right. Yes, it worked. Thank God. All right, otherwise, this is going to be a long lecture. Okay. So what is your best assessment of LV systolic function in this patient, all right? So do you think it's hyperdynamic? Do you think it's normal, mild, moderate, severe dysfunction? And as we go through, there's no right or wrong answers necessarily, okay? Um, I want you to kind of get into the idea of, like, is that normal or not normal? Is it really not normal or hyperdynamic, et cetera? So the differences between mild and moderate and moderate and severe sometimes aren't so important, all right? 35 responses. That's a lot of people here today. Wow, that's awesome. Okay. So I'm going to close polling, all right? So right, so this is normal. This is a normal uh, LVEF just by visual estimation, OK? Any questions about that at all? Hopefully, people are just clicking the wrong ones to antagonize me. 
All right. This is the second patient. Don't be, uh, don't be uh, too misled by their giant pericardial effusion on there. This is a patient that I had recently in the CCRU. Really pay attention to their uh, LVEF, right? What's going on here? But yeah, so we got a big effusion up here, posterior as well. We won't talk about their early diastolic collapse that cardiology didn't call. That's fine. No race. Not a big deal. For five days straight. All right, so this one's a little bit harder to see, but once again, this is what critical care echo is. So LV's here. It's gonna be a lot of awkward silence for me. And this is our apical four chamber. Can't see the right side very well, but there you go. Ooh, nice. So thinking about what the last one was, we'll give you a chance to look at the apical four as we talk about it. This is patient hyperdynamic, normal, worse function than the last one, a lot worse. What do you guys think? I'm gonna expect 35 responses now every time, so. All right, sweet. So right, this is hyperdynamic, right? So this person is squeezing all the way, right? On their parasternal short, both of those walls look like they're almost touching. Same thing with the apical uh, four chamber here. So this patient is squeezing everything that they're getting put in there, right? And that's what EF is about, is how much they're squeezing out of what's in there. Well, and Sarah will talk a little bit more um, about some of the other things uh, about filling, it, et cetera. All right, so this is just to compare the two. So this is something that uh, it's a little bit different than we did last time. We kind of reviewed them all, all at the end here. But that's the difference between those two. So you can look at them next to each other. We can see how much closer those walls are coming together um, compared to our normal. Any questions about that? No? Getting some head nods. People are getting bored already. Awesome. OK. So parasternal long, this is our uh, third patient. Give you a chance to just take a look at it briefly. And I'll be quiet for once. And last, apical four. All right, so what do you guys think? Hyperdynamic, normal, is it better or worse than the last couple? Or is it a lot worse than the last two? Okay, so most of you guys picked moderate dysfunction. Uh, definitely no one picked normal, right? This is, so this is significantly worse uh, than the, the first two, right? Everybody can see that. Uh, it's, and it's worse than mild dysfunction. It's at least moderate. Uh, I would grade this as severe dysfunction. You're really not getting much. And a lot of the movement that you're seeing here uh, is actually the heart kind of just moving back and forth in that little bit of effusion, but it's not actually squeezing. It's not contracting uh, inward. The chamber itself isn't being reduced. So this is... Uh, at least moderate, if not severe dysfunction, right? But that's the key, right? 80% uh, of you guys were like, yep, this heart is clearly not working, and it's clearly causing a problem in the patient in shock. And that's the key point that we want to pick out here. All right, so this is the difference between normal and severe. I think you guys figured that out already. All right, so this is a parasternal lung, patient number four. a little hard to see. So LV's right here. All right, what do you guys think? Are all the walls contracting? Is it better or worse than the last one? Compare that to the normal one. Okay. Perfect. So this is moderate dysfunction, right? So I, that's why I think the first, the last one at least, was severe. This one is significantly better, but it's still everybody recognizes this is not a normal 
uh, LVEF, right? And it's not just a little bit abnormal, it's pretty significantly abnormal, okay? Um, we do see squeeze, but it is, it is certainly reduced, and in, the, in this patient, uh, is, their LV is not helping them uh, in whatever their shock state is, okay? So compare these two, right? So definitely better than the other side. You can see how the one on the left really kind of rocks versus the one on the right um, actually does squeeze uh, kind of all the way around. A little bit, not so much in the septum. But. All right. Number five. Let me go through this one a little bit more quickly. And also, for you guys who are keeping track at home, you can also note like which wall isn't working. It's pretty obvious in this one, I think, right? Which wall is working, which one's not? Maybe what culprit lesion it is. Right, so this is severe dysfunction, all right? So we're gonna keep going back and forth a little bit to kind of hash those out. All right, so this is six. So better or worse, better or the same as the last one? And is it quite normal? And is it pretty obviously reduced? Good, so this is at least in the mild to moderate range, right? This is clearly not normal, but not nearly as severe as the last one. So I kind of put this on the borderline of that mild to moderate one as well. So certainly not helping you out. Uh, very well here, okay? And then just to compare those two, once again, you can see that the one on the right is definitely squeezing all the way, left, or squeezing kind of throughout, the left not so much. All right. Another good parasternal. And the only key I'll give you here is patients, at least in this one, is a bit more bradycardic, so just be careful with that. Really pay attention to the squeeze, the walls. And last is the apical four. So a lot of you guys said normal. I think almost everybody else said mild dysfunction. So yeah, so this is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit mild, mildly dysfunctional compared to a, a totally normal, um, but it's like kind of right on the border. So this is a one where, don't be fooled by the bradycardia. A lot of your cardiac output is gonna be reduced here just because you're bradycardic. This is a spine patient, right? So this is a young kid um, who uh, was a high quad and was just really, really bradycardic. His heart worked okay, right? And then if you guys remember the first one, uh, the first normal echo that we had, that was him after a little bit of epi. And his LVEF increased significantly. His cardiac output almost doubled just from his uh, chronotropy, but also his inotropy from the epi as well. All right, but this is not hyperdynamic. Um, the walls aren't coming that close together. Um, right. I'm gonna show you mild versus moderate here. This is eight. I'm gonna go through this one quick. So I think everybody's catching on pretty quickly. Like you guys are rocking this. So even for the people out in the audience who have never looked at Echo, I think most of you guys are getting this pretty quickly. And that's why I kind of wanted to go through this, right? And make you guys commit to an answer because like cardiology, it's just kind of like nephrology. Put this box around Echo, like nobody can do it, right? And that's not true. It's like nephrology, you can't do CRRT. Well, we do it, we can do it, we just have to teach uh, teach each other how to do it. 
All right. Perfect. Severe dysfunction. And then last one. Awesome, so normal, right? So this is a normal one. Certainly, for those of you guys who picked, uh, hyperdynamic, not quite hyperdynamic. I think in the one apical four, it slides a little bit off axis, and I think that's maybe why you saw that. Uh, but if you gotta look at all the views, that's the other thing why we give you guys a bunch of views. So you can't just look at one parasternal or one apical four and be like, oh, this is their function. You really need to look at all the different views put together. Um, so that's why it's not hyperdynamic, but this is a normal patient. Um, and depending on the clinical scenario, that can be completely fine or not so much. So just to think about uh, what we just talked about. So is the LV causing or contributing uh, to the shock, or is it not? Uh, and I think those are the things that we want to talk about. And is it, given the cl uh, clinical scenario, is the LV function appropriate? All right, Dr. Murthy. Hi, everyone. Um, I have to leave a little bit early, so Dr. Hasse is going to handle the cases. I don't want you to think it's not that I'm super interested. I just have a meeting I couldn't reschedule. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how you make assessing LV more of an actual tool that you can use. So just visually calling ejection fraction can help you decide when to use an inotrope. But if you want to decide whether to use a fluid, bol fluid bolus or to start vasopressors, it really helps to be able to have some sense of what the stroke volume and cardiac output are. So we'll talk a little bit about hemodynamics, how you calculate out the cardiac output, cardiac index, and stroke volume index. And then we'll talk about how you use those measurements together with the EF to help guide your therapy at the bedside. The way we use echo that's a little bit different than the cardiologist is we don't read it the same way every time. So it, a cardiologist is reading 40 a day. They're reading it for the outpatient and inpatient setting. It's the same exam, read out the same way. The way you read and think about your echo is going to be different for each patient that you're dealing with. Um, not every patient with a low EF needs inotropic support. If Mr. Smith is eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and his EF is 30, he doesn't need a dobutamine. If the same Mr. Smith has acute pancreatitis, maybe he does. So you can't take the echo out of the context of the patient in this case. Um, but you want to think about inotropes with low EF. You want to think about fluid with small underfilled hearts. You want to think about a vasopressor with a high output heart and a low blood pressure. So you want to think about all these things, and echo can help you figure out how to use them. Um, I think it's important to remember to always treat the patient and not treat the echo. It can be, it sounds stupid, but it can be easy to get caught in the fact the echo looks really terrible, they need, they need something, but if the patient's fine, the patient's fine. So we divide and think about patients in the free in sort of two general categories. Do they have evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion? Are they shocky? Is their lactate high? Do they have reasons you're trying to push cardiac output? So I consider most patients in the neuro ICUs to be in this category. Generally, if somebody's got some element of spinal injury or head injury, the overall idea is to drive cardiac output while they're in the acute phase. So do they have end-organ hypoperfusion are you, that you're worried about, or are they at risk of that? Um, and then we also think about whether all of that is settled and they're just in respiratory failure. So if they have end-organ hypoperfusion or at risk of it, you're going to tend towards a more fluid liberal strategy. If they're just in respiratory failure, you're going to tend towards a more fluid strategy. I think Dr. Hasse gave you 80, 90% of what you need to know with ECHO. I think the most important part is this ability to really kind of call EF and then also RV function. I think being able to calculate out the cardiac index and calculate out the stroke volume will make you better. I don't think it's as important as being able to assess the EF. I think it's essential, though, if you're going to try to figure out, do I need a vasopressor or do I need fluid? And I'll talk about that. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that right now. So the hyperdynamic heart that Dr. Hasse showed you, that heart that completely kisses, it's fast, it kisses, the EF is really high. That EF can be high either because the heart is small to begin with, so it takes no time for the fluid to come out during systole, or it can be high because the heart is hyperdynamic and putting out a lot of output. So if it's hyperdynamic, because the heart is small, will the stroke volume be small or high? Small, right? So you have a low stroke volume, 
we're going to talk about how you measure stroke volume with echo. It's VTI is the answer, but you're going to have a low stroke volume. If you're hyperdynamic because you're big and full and booming, is your stroke volume going to be high or low? High, right, it's going to be high. So that's really a lot of why you're trying to assess stroke volume. So you can tell if it's underfilled, small output, or big booming and full. That difference is actually very hard to call visually. Visually, you can determine what the EF is, but you have a fast heart that's putting out a lot. It's very hard to tell just visually what the stroke volume is. They look the same. <clears throat> so you guys know, all know the basics of this, but I think it tends to show up on any exam that you might take. Oxygen delivery is a cardiac output times the carrying capacity. Um, the patient is telling you if they need more delivery. So if the patient is fine, they don't need more delivery, but if they're shocky, more delivery probably makes sense. And echo tells you the best way to increase your delivery. So echo is not going to tell you if you need more cardiac output. You have to decide that. Echo is going to tell you how to increase the cardiac output if you want to. Um, it's important to break out cardiac output. It's, I'm not exactly sure why we're so in the habit of thinking in cardiac index and not stroke volume. I think if you're trying to decide something about function, you're much better thinking about terms of stroke volume because if the heart rate is high, what's the cardiac output probably going to be? High, or at least normal. So in all these patients that I do with, sorry, I don't mean to be, in all these patients that I do with low EF or RV dysfunction, a lot of them have a normal cardiac index. With a heart rate of 110, 115, 120, which is almost baseline in these units, you're going to have a normal cardiac index. If you want to figure something out about volume status or cardiac function, you're much better thinking in terms of stroke volume. But it's our convention to think about cardiac index over stroke volume. But obviously, your cardiac output is your heart rate times your stroke volume. Um, and then your MAP, which we all know, is proportional to both your cardiac output and your stroke volume, and your systemic vascular resistance, right? So if you have a low MAP and a high cardiac output, what does that mean about your resistance? Low MAP, high output. What does that mean about your resistance? Say it all at once. Low, right? So what, what therapy would make sense if you have a high cardiac output and a low MAP in somebody who's shocky? Vasopressors, right? So again, this is part of why knowing how to calculate your cardiac output helps you as a tool. Because if your MAP is low and your cardiac output looks high on echo, you want to start thinking about a vasopressor. I think we forget this all the time. Um, and one of the ways I think we forget this is this idea that if somebody's MAP is low, you give them two liters to begin with. If their MAP is low and their heart rate is high, they probably have a decent cardiac output. So just keep in the back of your mind that anybody with a low MAP and a high heart rate is probably also vasodilated. Does everybody understand that? Because I think I did this calculation 1,500 times before I was like, oh, wow. So if you have a high heart rate, if your heart rate is 110, 115, and your MAP is 60, even with a low stroke volume, you are also, your patient is also vasodilated. It doesn't mean you don't give fluid, but it means you think about fluids in conjunction with norepinephrine or with a vasopressor. <clears throat> so um, I think we should think about the calculations in ECHO almost the same way that Dr. Hasi was describing for EF. So I can't tell you, you can't, you can't tell me, we can't determine if somebody's cardiac index is, say, 3.3 versus 3.5. You can't do really fine discrimination with echo, but you can do general categories, and it's almost the same categories. Is it low? Is it low end of normal? Is it normal? Is it high? So that's how I want you guys to start thinking in terms of stroke volume and cardiac index. Is it low? Is it a problem? Is it maybe not as good as I want it to be? Is it probably fine? Is it awesome? Um, and I think this is actually an advantage to echo, um, because I don't know, how many of you have been in the CSICU or... I guess nobody operates around a PA catheter that much anymore. But when you have a PA catheter in and the cardiac index is 1.8, you cannot get the nurse to stop calling you. It doesn't matter if the patient's fine. So I think thinking in terms of individual numbers is actually making us less good as doctors. You really want to think kind of generally about what the number is relative to the patient in front of you. Um, I want to bring home this point that I think is especially problematic for the surgeons. I do not think MAP, I don't think blood pressure is a good measure of volume status. It's super hard to get out of our minds because the first reflex whenever somebody's blood pressure is low is to give fluid. And fluid will always increase your blood pressure, at least transiently. So transiently, every patient looks like they're volume responsive. But there's a couple ways that fluid works to increase your pressure, one of which is increasing your right atrial pressure. And so if that's what it's doing, it's not helping flow across the capillary bed. So MAP is not a good measure of fluid. And I always want you to think of fluid as temporizing, not, not therapeutic. Fluid can help you until you figure out what's going on. 
Okay, um, also, last slide on concepts, is cardiac output does not equate to cardiac function. So I think this is the central error with all of the hemodynamic catheters. I don't care if you're talking about a vigilay, I don't care if you're talking about a pulmonary artery catheter, I don't care if you're talking about a LIDCO or one of the Doppler methods. Cardiac output is not equivalent to cardiac function. Somebody tell me the first reason why. Cardiac output with a high heart rate, even in low stroke volume, is gonna give you a high number, right? So cardiac output, cardiac index as a number, will miss a lot of dysfunction. What if you have RV dysfunction? Is it necessarily gonna show up in your cardiac output? The problem with RV dysfunction is pressure overload on the right. So you can have a normal cardiac function, a normal cardiac output with pretty bad RV function. <clears throat> so how do we measure cardiac output with echo? We use a left ventricular outflow tract time in interval, the LVOTVTI, time integral. Um, and what other measure do we need? Who else knows? Who knows what else we need? We need really two measures, right? We need the left ventricular outflow tract VTI, and what's the other measure? Diameter, right? Does anybody know what number you can put in if you don't know what that, if you can't get the diameter measurement? Yeah, body surface area. So the units are obviously very different, but the body surface area roughly corresponds to the outflow tract diameter in centimeters. So if somebody's BSA is 1.8, their outflow tract diameter is probably 1.8 centimeters. If somebody's BSA is 2.0, their outflow tract is probably somewhere around 2.0 centimeters. It's harder when you get to the morbidly obese, so the most value I'll give somebody is 2.4, but if somebody's really, really obese, that falls off a little bit. But it's pretty hard to get the outflow tract diameter measurement. <clears throat> okay, so stroke volume and cardiac output with echo. Echo estimates the stroke volume. This VTI measurement is the most important part of it. This is done through which window? apical five chamber, right? You apply pulsed wave Doppler to, the, um, to just within the aortic valve. Um, you get this cone of flow. I think most of us who do echo for a while start thinking in terms of VTI and less in terms of stroke volume, but VTI can just assert, it, VTI is a measure of stroke volume. Nice normal heart. You measure the outflow tract diameter. The outflow tract diameter is pi r squared. You're just measuring the area of the base and then the tip of the blood flow through to it. So that's going to be the tip of the blood flow. And using those two measurements, you can get the stroke volume. Obviously, if you divide the stroke volume by the body surface area, you get the stroke volume index. It's a nice big flow of cardiac output or stroke volume during a beat. Um, I think to do VTI, you have to know the machine you're using. You have to play with the machine you're using. So the machines you guys all have in the units are the Philips XC50s. Those are cardiac quality machines. So the Doppler waveforms are really good. We spent a lot of time we've spent a lot of time correlating them against PA catheters and um, vigilators to understand where the where the errors are. If you're using Sonosite or a different machine, you can totally do that. But you have to understand your machine and how well it's doing Doppler. Does anybody know whether uh, a machine will tend to overestimate or underestimate the VTI? Yeah, underestimate. You can only underestimate. The less good your machine is, the lower it will be. So you have to have a good, high-quality crystal to get the right estimate. And that's part of why you always pick the biggest waveform. Um, that outflow tract diameter measurement is an area measurement, so it's pi r squared. So it's very prone to error. The VTI measurement can only underestimate, just like we just talked about. So that's part of why we tend to think in terms of just VTI. Um, the reason to count to convert into stroke volume is so we can all talk a common language. There's tons of people who are never really going to learn echo, but everybody understands stroke volume and cardiac output. Um, so stroke volume and cardiac output by echo is not rocket science. Everyone can do it. It's just a little bit frustrating. It takes some time. You have to get to know your machine. Um, and we're going to put modules up online that you guys can all use to reinforce learning it. Um, this is just an example of how different machines will give you a different number. So one of the things to keep in mind as you guys go out into the real world is that the cheapest thing for any ultrasound system or any ultrasound company is the software. So they'll try to send you a crap, they'll try to sell you a crappy probe and give you all the software in the world to automatically calculate our cardiac output. But if the probe is bad, the values are going to be bad. So these are two papers. One, one is ours comparing um, echo-derived cardiac output to a PA catheter. We show good correlation. That's the one on the right. The nice cardiac crystal. The one on the left is an automated cardiac system by Sonosite that showed no that showed poor correlation with the PA catheter. So if you have a bad machine in a bad waveform, you're going to have a low value or an inaccurate value. So cardiac output does not equal cardiac function. VTI is the best way to measure stroke volume. Echo measurements of cardiac output, cardiac index, and stroke volume aren't rocket science. They can be used together to guide management. 
So Dr. Hasse is going to run you through a couple of cases. If I stay, I'll stay forever because I love cases. But hopefully this will help you figure out how you use EF and stroke volume index together or VTI together. All right. So these are all cases that um, are going to kind of go through the, the concepts that we just talked about. And what we're trying to do is we're, gonna, we're trying to go figure out when EF and VTI and how you use them together in a clinical situation, right? That was all nice, great. We talked about hemodynamics. It's super important to be able to calculate all that stuff. But we need to know how to apply it clinically. And I think that's, uh, that's what we're going to talk about for the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes, okay? So first case, a lot of these are from the CCRU, which is, of course, where I work. So uh, it's a 54-year-old lady. She presented to the outside emergency department with loss of consciousness. She had a big subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? That's this over here, starfish, great. So anyway, pretty significant uh, subarachnoid. And when she gets to the CCRU, uh, she gets an EVD place, right? Because she already has some early hydrocephalus on her uh, CT scan there. She's intubated. Uh, her probe falls at 30. Her fentanyl's at 100. And over the next, like, four to six hours, she gets progressively more hypotensive. So start to give her some 3% normal saline, want to drive her sodium up, make sure that she's uh, completely full. Uh, but she has to get started on some norepi because her, her map's pretty low. Um, and then her lab's like four or six hours in, or like lactate's about three and a half, and her, her SCVO2 is down a little bit as well. So vitals at that time, heart rate 75, blood pressure is about 90 over 50 with a low MAP, norepi's at eight. I guess this would, now that we're in mics per kilo per minute, I need to change this slide. Um, so it's like at 0. .0 something. Not a super high dose. And this is her echo. So this is an echo. We had a good echo for this last year, and uh, Dr. Cindy Sue gave us an even better echo the other day. So I use hers, so credit to her. All right, um, so what I want to go through here is this is parasternal short at two different uh, areas. So this is down at the apex, past the papillary muscles, and this is up at the mitral valve, and look at the difference. Right, and then this is like the money shot. Uh, this is like the one that gives it all away, right? Yeah, so this is classic what? Tagatsubo, right? So apical akinesis with basal sparing, right? Uh, and this is pretty common for uh, head patients, if you will. So run a VTI, trace that out, and you get a VTI that's 16. So her, so, so we have to answer this question. I won't give it away. Oh, yeah, you did. So 20 to 25 is normal. Remember that. So does this patient have a normal EF or a low EF? A normal VTI or a low VTI? Clickers. Clickers, Anthony. But I appreciate the interaction. I'm glad I turned the lights on now. That's true. It's just free for all. Sweet. Perfect, right? So this is a low EF. Pretty clearly low EF, low VTI. We gave you guys the numbers, all right? So we can go through the hemodynamics of it all, right? But here's your VTI. It's low. When you do your LVOT diameter, you end up getting a low stroke volume. So we proved it to you with calculating it out. That's a low stroke volume. I forgot to say something. Yeah. I have to go. OK. I wanted to say the other reason you use VTI is it confirms your 2D estimate of EF, right? So if you have a high EF, you should have a pretty good VTI. If you have a low EF, you should have a pretty low VTI. So in some of those ones that Dr. Hasse was showing you before, where it was hard to tell mild from moderate from normal, the VTI can kind of help you figure that piece out. If you have a good VTI and it looks low, you probably have some dysfunction. So it helps you figure out and double check your EF assessment. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, so that's kind of reaffirming what we thought before, right? And that makes sense, okay? Low stroke volume, low EF, low VTI, all right? So if you go calculate all this out, we're not going to go through all the steps. Essentially what we figure out is a normal SVR. All right? So what's your next step in management? And this is where it's clinically applicable, right? So I already did some things to this patient, right? I'd given them some fluids, given them some vasopressors, and uh, against my own better judgment, I did not echo the patient right away. But what are you going to do now in this patient, right? You had a normal cardiac output, a normal SVR on pressors with low EF and low VTI. There's at least 10 more of you here. You're just going to let the patient die. I can see that. No, I'm just kidding. 
this patient needs an inotrope, right? So that's what you're re reaffirming with your VTI, right? You can calculate all that stuff out, but low EF, low VTI, low stroke volume, and the patient's in shock, the patient needs an inotrope, okay? We'll go over a couple cases as to why this is, this is kind of our classic example of needing an inotrope, and we'll go through a couple of different cases here, okay? So what I do, well, give him a little bit of dobutamine, came off the norepi, MAP went up with dobutamine, right? Because your stroke volume increased significantly. Uh, lactate SVO2 normalized, right? That's that case, right? So that's a case where the worst thing that you can do is give afterload to a patient with no EF, right? That's, I was hurting the patient by doing that. Um, all right. So case number two. So these are Sarah's cases. So about a 75-year-old female. She's post-op day two from her left hemicolectomy for perforated diverticulitis. It's an ACEs special. So her abdomen is left open. Uh, and heart rate's normal. BP's low. Uh, urine output's marginal. What do you want to do? We were working without echo before, so she wanted to be like, hey, without an echo, what are you going to do? Surgeons want to get the patient's abdomen closed today. Oh, she forgot to tell you that. Abdomen wants to be closed today. It's post-op day two. The longer we keep that abdomen open, the higher rate that it's not going to get closed, higher rate of ECF, et cetera, et cetera. So what are you going to do? Add an iontrope, vasoconstrictor, bolus, you know, get rid of fluid. Oh, E, do an echo is the right answer, right? Okay, fluid bolus, all right? It's a patient, it's hypotensive, um, their MAP was low, right? Let's do an echo. How's our function look? Right, apical four. Here's your VTI, it's 18, right? So what was that again? It's low, right? So how's your EF, high or low? High, right? And what's your VTI? Low, okay. So if your VTI low, it means your stroke volume is low. So what are you gonna do for this patient? Give them an inotrope, vasoconstrictor, fluid bolus, diuresis, and you're gonna tell the surgeons what? I know what I tell them every day. I work with them every day, so I can tell them that. <laughs> there he is. Okay, great. Right? So just like you guys thought, a lot of you said they need a fluid bolus, okay? So this is a case where you want to get the patient diuresis so you can get their abdomen closed, but the patient's hypotensive, their lactate's up. You actually need to give them fluid in this case, all right? And so at the risk of continuing to fluid overload the patient, maybe not getting their abdomen closed, you need to preserve the rest of the body, right? So this is a good example of really, really high EF. If you look at that, you're like, boy, you know, they definitely um, don't need an inotrope, but this is a case where they're underfilled, okay? And the way that I can tell that is because I do left ventricular and diastolic dimension, okay? So this is a measurement that goes how, uh, how full the LV is at end diastole, okay? At the end of filling, how big is it? Um, and what are the other things that we can use? We can use things like stroke volume variation, um, IVC collapsibility, IJ collapsibility, and those type of things to make you help you figure out whether or not you need a fluid bolus, okay? But certainly just filling at the end uh, of diastole in this patient is gonna help you pretty significantly figure out whether or not that LV that's slamming, no problems with output, right, is actually, has, uh, is actually full or not, and that helps you figure that out, okay? So you gave the patient some fluid, their VTI went to 23, Urine output improved, lactate improved, et cetera. All right, case number three. So 66-year-old male, post-op day one. He was in his car accident like the night before, and now it's like the afternoon the next day. So it's like 24 hours out. He had his spleen angioembolized, and this is the guy that's tachycardic and still hypotensive, right? He had hemorrhage control 20 hours ago, but he's still hypotensive. His lactate's three and a half, his urine output's 25. So... This is for the, the fellows over in the trauma ICU, right? So what are you gonna do for this patient? Overnight, what did you do without the free? What, what are you gonna do on this patient without an echo? Add an inotrope, it's an old guy. Vasoconstrictor, fluid bolus. Let me give him mechanical support, probably not that. I don't think you'd diuresum right here either, probably a little, little early. Right, so most of you guys are gonna give this guy fluid, right? 
So, and that's probably what you've been doing for the last 24 hours. But let's look at his echo. How's he squeezing? Okay. Not amazing. It's not totally normal. But your VTI is 29, right? So that's like a mild dysfunction with a high VTI, right? So that's a low EF, high VTI. So you measure an LVIDD and that's normal. So this patient is full, right? Uh, even on the high side, their IVC is not collapsible, no stroke volume variation. So now what do you undo for the patient? How many are gonna add an inotrope, increase your vasoconstrictors, fluid bolus, mechanical support? So remember, your VTI is normal. So half of you got this right, half of you got this wrong. So he doesn't need an inotope, right? His VTI is normal, his stroke volume is big, right? So this is one of these patients, he's older. He has this big heart, and even though it doesn't look visually like it's moving very much, it's big, and so even a little bit of contraction gives you a normal stroke volume. And this is actually a high stroke volume. If you go out and, if you go out and actually calculate it, it's like 90, 95, right? So he's a guy that doesn't need an inotrope. This is the patient that Sarah was talking about, What'd she say? Tachycardic, low MAP, normal output, needs a vasoconstrictor, needs a vasopressor, okay? That's what this guy actually needs, right? He's in kind of that like 12 to 48 hour inflammatory shock that you see after hemorrhagic shock, right? After you get source control, they continue to bleed. This guy does not actually need an inotrope, okay? He has, although his EF may be a little bit low, his stroke volume is normal to high, all right? Questions about that? No, okay. Does that make sense? Stroke volume's high, he shouldn't need an inotrope. That's why you have to use EF and BTI together. That's why EF on its own is not, not the only thing, all right? This is another case that hopefully will drive that home. So 55-year-old guy, this is the guy I saw in the CCRU. So he came to the ED, outside ED with shortness of breath that had been kind of progressing pretty rapidly for two days. And once he gets to the ED, um, he kind of crumps. He gets intubated, um, and over like the next 12 hours, he goes to the ICU and comes to the CCRU for ECMO evaluation. As part of his routine evaluation, he gets an echo. Um, that's what his x-ray looked like, so probably an appropriate transfer. Um, it's not so good. Some of our medicine colleagues may know what the answer is already based on that x-ray. That's what Lewis told me, at least. All right, this is his echo. And this is his VTI. So is his EF normal? And I was saying normal, normal to high. Or is his EF low? And is VTI normal or low? And that's a good waveform for him. There's no question about it. It's not us underestimating. I'm seeing some puzzled looks up there. This, this, this question is just EF high or low, just looking at it, and is his VTI high or low? So his EF is normal, right? If you're looking at it, his EF is clearly normal to high. But his VTI is low, right? It's under 20, well under 20, at least it's significantly impaired. So why is that? Well, we had the other case, right, where his EF was clearly normal, but he, wasn't ha he had a low VTI because he wasn't full. This guy's full. He's actually in the kind of mildly dilated range, five and a half. So his endoxolic volume is big. So he should be ejecting a lot out, right? So it's not because he's not full. So if the fluid isn't going through the aortic valve, where is it going? 
There's two places, there's two diagnoses here that it could possibly be. MR or a VSD, right? That would be the other possibility. So you go through everything, you confirm your, your calculations, the stroke volume is low, and that's his wide open MR, right? This is one of the reasons why when you use EF alone and don't do VTI or don't look at some of the other things, EF visual estimation alone may mislead you, right? Same thing with the hyperdynamic underfilled patient. This guy also had a low VTI. His cardiac output was low. And why was it low? Because the fluid wasn't, wasn't going where it was supposed to. All right? So if you actually look at it, there's some things that you can do to measure. That's not what this is about. But he has huge wide open MR. Um, and then you can actually see that the two valves don't come together. So this is a gentleman who actually had known mitral valve prolapse and then ruptured a cord. Right, so stroke volume is low, but definitely had what would look like if you were just gonna put a probe down and not do any measurements, you'd say, oh, he has normal EF, right? So what are you gonna do for him? I've given you the diagnosis, now it's the next step in management. You're gonna add an inotrope to him? Is he not squeezing well enough? You're gonna vasoconstrict him? You're gonna remove fluid? You're gonna afterload uh, reduce him? and do mechanical support. There's more than one right answer to this. There's a couple wrong answers though, I will tell you that. <laughs> awesome, so afterload reduction is one, diuresis on him is another, and then mechanical support, right? One of the indications for a balloon pump is absolutely severe new onset MR, right? It's afterload reduction, right? D and E are the same thing, so afterload reduction, all right? And diuresis is gonna be the same thing, all right? So this guy got a balloon pump, he got his valve fixed, and he did okay, all right? So these are working again. So before, compared to previous, compared to the answer that you didn't give me, because uh, I screwed it up, how much more comfortable are you? I'm not saying everybody's gonna walk out of here and be an echocardiographer, but at least we can get an idea of what we think a general category of EF is. Let's go fairly comfortable with that now. Or did I do a terrible job? That's basically what you're telling me if you say D. I'm just saying. Good, thank God. All right, I can keep my job. How about VTI stroke volume, or stroke volume cardiac output? We didn't go through a lot of the technical aspects of it, but hopefully went through some of the practical aspects of how you can use it clinically and why EF visual estimation on its own is not, is not perfect. Good, so we also didn't completely fail you there. And then said, help a little bit to use the two together. Do you understand now at least why they have to be used in conjunction with each other and can't be used alone? And not even so much applying them, but understanding that. Hopefully this will make you walk out of here and go, oh, I can't just put a probe on a chest and not do anything else and just look at EF only. Good, sweet. That's all I got. So hopefully those are the take home points you got. Apply EF to the clinical scenario. Some patients need a cardiac output of eight or 10 liters. EF alone is not perfect. VTI is also not perfect, but together they can be applied to clinical scenarios that make you kind of ruffle your brow like most of you did on a couple of those cases, okay? Thanks a lot.